uh, November 13, 2011, lecture discussion number intermission 12. And this will be the last of these intermission lectures. Uh, next week we're returning to Romans 4 or thereabouts, and Professor Edgar Andrews' scholarly, scholarly sorry, a treatise on, among other things, the existence of law and the uh, uh, theological or supernatural implications of law existing, or the, uh, the implications of it. Uh, and before I get started, I just wanted to say uh, hi to Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin, I do get your emails, and Lori sent you one, because I send no emails. And Sharon, uh, you were right. After all, we knew you were. We just didn't know to what extent. Apparently, that uh, little uh, rant that I did on the on the uh, designated hitter looped and looped and looped and looped. So Sharon thought she was going crazy. And no, Sharon, you're absolutely normal. That was a technical glitch that sounds very funny. And last night I ran into Missy. Hi, Missy. And Missy told me that her grandmother was listening. Her grandmother's from Australia. And uh, grandmother and Missy were were huge in Australia. And Missy did tell me, uh, not Misty, but Missy, she did tell me that whenever she has insomnia, she puts on my CD. And I don't think she really meant it as as exactly that way, but... uh, that is exact, pretty close to what she said. She can't sleep at three in the morning, and she puts in my lecture. So, uh, anyway, that was cool, and I'm glad to see her and everybody else as well. Okay, prepare yourself next week uh, for Edgar Andrews, at least, and dust off your Who Made God and your interferometer diagrams, because that's where we're headed back to. And back we shall go to uh, wave-particle duality and constructive and destructive interference. And I'm intentionally uh, getting those words back into your heads uh, so that you will know what they are and understand the mysterious laws of the microscopic world. Now, uh, as an aside, they're not mysterious because they're mysterious. They really aren't mysterious. They seem contrary to the laws of the macroscopic world. In other words, what's happening microscopically seems to be the opposite of what's happening to what we can see or the large physical world, the physical reality. They are not in, in, in I'm sorry, in, incompatible and they're not contrary. Uh, it is the microscopic world that functions the way it does that makes us makes the physical uh, reality the reality. They're designed to cause the macroscopic reality, if you will. Anyway, we're going to return to that once we left prior to my abbreviated shallow exploration of the 12-step Jewish betrothal wedding ceremony and the impact that it has on Scripture. And I hope by now that you realize that I am doing a a very incomplete Exploration of it. Uh, I hope you know that. Uh, um, our foray into this uh, betrothal process is is very incomplete. It is not even close to the depth you need to go. I covered it many, many times. Every time I've covered it, I have done it in a superficial uh, way. In other words, I just got the basics in so that people at least understood it existed. And this time, uh, I wanted to take it to the next level, uh, which is step ten. If you have your bulletins, I don't know if it's in today's bulletin or not. I don't think it is because uh, uh, there wasn't room this week. But step 10, I wanted you to see that step 10 had this relationship to Numbers 20 and, uh, uh, and through uh, Psalm 118.26 and Exodus 17. So that's why I did it the way I did it this time. In other words, 
or saying it another way, how many rocks are there that you got to worry about that have water coming out of them? There's two of them. There's two water from rocks in Scripture. And you've, if you start seeing two waters from rocks, you start thinking, well, they must testify of something. I have two testaments, right? I have two rocks. I have two witnessing, two witnesses. I have two comings of Christ. Each one says something very specific. And I have Exodus 17's rock and I have Numbers 20 rock. And both of them provide water, even though they do it in a way that is, uh, uh, again, doesn't seem to fit with one another. But it does fit with one another. So know that there are two smote with rod rocks. And both yield water. And they're 40 years apart. That's important, critical actually. One was to be smote, killed by the rod, Exodus 17. The other one wasn't supposed to be killed by the rod. It was supposed to be spoken to, uh, Numbers 20. However, the Numbers 20 rock was also smote by the rod. Both ended up being smote by the rod. And it was an act of unbelief. Numbers 2012 by Moses and Aaron. It was an act of rebellion, Numbers 2024. God called it unbelief and rebellion to hit it twice and to say what Moses said. And so uh, we began to look at the motive of Moses for doing what he did and saying what he said at Numbers 20. That became our challenge. And in order to work uh, through the passage, I proposed these five questions that are here on the board. So let's run through them pretty quickly so that we can see where we're at here a little bit, especially for those who have missed and are now catching up with us. Why did, um, why did God, question number one or question A, why did God command Moses to take the rod in Numbers 20? If Moses was only supposed to speak to the rock, it's all he was supposed to do, speak to the rock, what was the purpose of taking the rod? Obviously, the rod was taken at the first rock, Exodus 17. Rock one, if you will, because the rock was intended to kill the rock. Out of the dead rock comes the living water. That's your, your Christology, right? That should be obvious by now. But what was the purpose of taking the rock or the rod to the second rock when all we were to do was speak to that rock? And I said that, uh, I told you that taking the rod is God's response to being called evil. Look at that, look at the order in Numbers 20. It begins with them being thirsty again after 40 years. And again, they begin to call God evil again. And the response to being called evil is take the rod. So now you know there's a relationship between the rod and what it testifies of and God being called evil and a liar. And so it testifies against the charges of Israel. That was the singular most important reason the rod is taken. And Moses knew that. Now, I asked second question. Uh, oh, actually, I got them backwards this week. What was Moses supposed to say to the rock? Change it for you so that you, it matches my, this week's lecture. Which, if I had time during the song service to make corrections, which I don't, because we're down a song. And if we're not down a song, the other songs are way too short. Have I mentioned this before? Okay, is it doing any good? No, no. But I'm trying so hard. <laughs> I have no power. I, uh, that's a joke between me and Bill. And by the way, Bill and I, we do. We talk a lot on Thursdays. We're not able to talk on Wednesdays. And that's another joke that you have to know. Notice how careful I am uh, saying why we're not able to. 
talk so much, we, we don't get a word in edgewise on Wednesday. Thursdays is just the two of us, so we get to talk. First Jane. She can't hit me from wherever she's. Oh, there she is. Okay. <laughs> but one thing, just, to, just as an aside here really quickly. We have noticed that uh, men have changed in this country. When I was a young man, I went to work for the railroad. And um, they treated me like I was an idiot. Do you know why? Because I was an idiot. And they let me know that they knew that. And they wanted to make sure that I knew that. Not unlike the way the military functions. That's the, and you were judged by how much physical work you could do. And how many things you could do well. And men could do things. At the railroad in my day, there was a boilermaker shop, and they could bend steel to make plows for locomotives. They could make anything out of steel. The carpentry shop, and he could make anything out of wood, those people. There was a boilermaker, I'm sorry, there was a, a blacksmith shop, even though there were no horses anymore. But they had blacksmith equipment, and they made all kinds of things with it. Uh, the electrical department uh, could, could wire locomotives. And locomotives are as complicated as some aircraft. Men could do all of these things, car shop. These guys would go out to a wreck and grab locomotives and, and, and debris that are underneath the water and pull them back out again with cables and bulldozers. And amazing men. They were men. And today, the men today can play computer games. There isn't the physicality there was once. Uh, I was, I had a, a guy named Maynard Freetag, and he's gone now. He ended up being one of my great friends. He'd torment me every day. I was on the night shift. My job was to fix TTX cars and, and the uh, passenger train. I was the, uh, the electrician on the night shift because I was the lowest in seniority. And Maynard Freetag busted my chops all day, all night long. He chased me around that place and just screamed and yelled at me and tormented me. And I went home to my dad, and I said... What am I going to do with this guy? I can't deal with him. And he said, well, you're going to have to do what you, everybody else had to do. And I said, what's that? He said, you're going to have to fight. And if you don't fight, he's going to do this to you the rest of your life. So you better deal with it. So I went in the next day. I walked into his office in the car shop, and I called him Hank. I said, Hank, I guess i got to fight. And I took my belt off and took my hard hat off, and I put my gloves on because I knew I was going to be in for a really, this is an old, mean German, and this is going to be tough. He was about 40, and I was about 20, and this was going to be a war, and we were going to go. I don't know if I could take him or not. Probably not, but I was going to try. So I sat down and said, okay, I'm 20. You're tougher than me. You're smarter than me, but I think I can outlast you, so let's go. I'm sick of this. I'm not going to put up with it anymore. And he looked at me and said, I was, I was wondering when you were going to get tired of it. I said, okay, I'll stop now that you're smart enough and strong enough to stop me. And that's the way the railroad worked. And if you didn't get involved, in, if you didn't play by those rules, you got buried by them. I had hundreds of stories like that. And we, like I said, we became very, very good friends and, uh, because uh, I finally stood up for myself is how it works. That doesn't happen anymore. I made the joke last week that if I taught school, in, if Bill and I taught school, we'd be fired in 15 minutes. Because when we went through and we were teaching, it was a whole different world. I think I'd last longer than Bill. I think Bill would be gone in about eight or nine minutes. 
I'd at least make it to 12. Okay, where was I? How did I get lost on that? It's not really on here. What did he say? That's where it was. There's some Rodchild thing in there. You're exactly right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what was Moses supposed to say? What was he supposed to speak to the rock? And clues for this are in Matthew 21.9 and Matthew 23.39 and Luke 13.35. Uh, that's where Israel quotes Psalm 118.26. Uh, and, and the rock is described. It's the rock of offense. It's the chief cornerstone. It's the living stone. First uh, Peter two four through eight. Um, uh, and uh, so Christ quotes this. Um, Peter quotes it. Psalm one eighteen twenty six. Very very important verse in Scripture. And so I asked the question, what was, what was Moses supposed to say to the rock? And remember, he writes Psalm 118 as a response, if you will, as a reflection back on the events of Numbers 20. Okay, uh, number three, RC here is what I have. Then why did Moses strike the rock twice? Why, you know, he's going to strike the rock. He's not supposed to strike it at all, but he decides to strike it twice. Why twice? Why? What's the point of that? And then what was the meaning also with this? Because they're together. He strikes it twice, and then he also says, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Why does he say that? One thing you need to know that it is that it has a relationship with the reason he hit the rock twice. So for whatever reason it was that he hit the rock twice, that is the same reason that he said, here now you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Because he's not supposed to talk to Israel, is he? He's supposed to talk to the rock. So he substitutes Israel for the rock, and he says this word, and he hits the rock twice. The reason for hitting the rock twice, and the reason for saying, here now you rebels, is the same. The question really becomes, what's Moses' motive? What's he trying to do? What's his motive for saying what he said and doing what he did? And next, uh, D or, f where am I? Five? Four. And perhaps the second most critical of the questions of Numbers 20. What specifically did Moses and Aaron not believe? God says of them they didn't believe. You didn't believe. Moses didn't believe. Moses and Aaron what did God say to Moses that Moses did not believe? Moses, we're talking about Moses. I, I'm making an announcement at this time that the pumpkin rolls have arrived safely. And so those of you who are worried. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that's good news, huh? <laughs> I, my voice is a little better because of all the Diet Coke that I have drunk. And continue to drink. Okay. Numbers 20.12 says, Because you did not believe me. That's God speaking to Moses. So you've got to figure out quickly what it was that Moses and Aaron did not believe. And in conjunction with question 4 or D here, uh, what caused this rebellion? What exactly did Moses and Aaron rebel against? Why did they rebel? What is their motivation? What is it that Moses and Aaron are trying to accomplish? Okay, I submit, by the way, that Moses is trying to do what Moses always tries to do. 
He's doing what he always does, pinky. Right? And that makes questions four and five actually pretty obvious or pretty easy. Now, I'm rushing through this today as fast as I can in order to get it done so that we can go back to quantum mechanics next week. So, that's uh, if I lose you, um, um, it's okay. You can get the CD and do what everybody else does on the Internet and just uh, listen to it enough to where it puts you to sleep. Okay, that's basically the recap. And so I should erase the board now, because I have a note that says erase the board, and I always do what I say in my notes and then regret it almost immediately after I've done it. You've got to know there's two rocks, and you've got to work your way through those five questions, and then you'll be fine in Numbers 20. And there is the review, and hopefully everybody remembers all of it. I hope you do. Quite a few of you have, uh, uh, I should say this, that quite a few of you have come up to me, and you have done a wonderful job. You've answered all five questions, and congratulations, and, um, and you're, you think you're done, right? If you've answered all five questions, what comes next? That's right, more questions. That's exactly right. You're dead right. When you've successfully negotiated the five questions, then you are immediately rewarded. And it is a reward with question six. Now you have question six. A, B, C, D, E, F. Question F. Question number six is the water came out abundantly question. Because the water came out abundantly. And by the way, the another question reward is a scripture-approved principle. See John 3. What's John 3? That's Nicodemus. Nicodemus is called by Jesus Christ, the creator God in the flesh, right? Jesus Christ calls Nicodemus something. What's he calling? The teacher of Israel. Jesus Christ identifies Nicodemus as the wisest scripture scholar in all of Israel the most knowledgeable of all the Pharisees, the one who eventually figures out the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Nicodemus. The one who, along with Joseph of Arimathea, took the body, bought the hundred pounds of burial spices, bound the body of Christ. By the way, did you know that Nicodemus put those burial spices in that tomb and he also uh, prepared that body? The women didn't need to come. There's a lesson for you right there. Kidding. Thank you for laughing. It just uh, went way too fast. Anyway, Nicodemus, with Joseph of Arimathea, took the body, bought the 100 pounds of burial spices, bound the body of Christ, placed it in a new tomb. He made sure that that tomb was in the garden of Golgotha. He made sure that it was in the garden of Golgotha, right? We, that which is a, uh, I don't know what to call it. Uh, it's a, that's a broken English, Golgotha. The Garden of Golgoliath, the place that, that Goliath's skull was buried. Nicodemus made sure that he bought that tomb in that garden. There's a Garden of Gethsemane and a Garden of Golgoliath. And that's very important to know that there are how many gardens? Two gardens, baby. Keeps doing it, doesn't he? Nicodemus is the Pharisee who searched the Scripture and figured out that he had to have burial spices, had to be in his garden, he's got to have a tomb. He's got to bound the body. He knew all of that. He knew what day he was going to be crucified. He knew what time. He was ready. How good a scripture, uh, how, how good of a scholar is he? And anyway, he comes at night to Christ. And he identifies Christ as the Messiah. 
he identifies Christ as the first rock of Exodus 17. And what did Christ do? He rewarded Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes at night at great risk and says, you are the Messiah. I have figured it out. You are doing what the Messiah does and I have caught you. I know you're the Messiah. How many people to that point had said that to Christ? Nobody. This is the first guy comes at night, has it figured out. Just based on what he watched Christ do, went into the Bible, said this is the Messiah, comes at night and tells him. And he's rewarded by Christ with what? Another question. That's why. And what's he get? Christ gives him spiritual rebirth. He said, solve spiritual rebirth. Being born again, solve that. He said, solve spiritual reality versus physical reality. That's essentially what he gave him. That's next week's lecture, right? So you're being rewarded next week with physical reality and spiritual reality. He gave him the typology of Moses and the bronze serpent. He gave him rod questions. He gave him the mystery of the name of the second person of the triune Godhead, Proverbs 34. No one had ever solved Proverbs 34, and he gave it to him. What is the name of the second person of the triune Godhead? And ultimately, he gives him the meaning of Jacob's ladder. So Nicodemus came and said, you're the Messiah, and he gave him five or six more questions, all of them very, very difficult questions, right? And Nicodemus did what with that? He went right to work, figured it all out, bought the myrrh, bought the, uh, got the new tomb, took the body and bound it. Very wise man, Nicodemus, a, a man greatly honored by God in Scripture. Him and Joseph of Arimathea, uh, we should so aspire. So question number six, or F, for those who prefer letters to numbers. Um, the water came out abundantly question, or sometimes called, as I did last Sunday, why does Jesus Christ come for anybody question? Behold, the bridegroom does what? Comes. Blessed is he who comes. Why? Seth was, I asked Seth today, why is it cold? And he answered, how? He started giving me a description of how. I told him I didn't ask you how. I wanted to know why. It's philosophical. I don't think he understood me. He pretends so that I'll quit. <laughs> but others have tried that. <laughs> Why does Jesus Christ come for anybody question? It is a behold, because uh, behold the bridegroom actually comes. If you want to think, behold the bridegroom showed up. Because what kind of person comes for a rebellious, selfish, wicked people? that constantly, unceasingly calls their creator the author of evil. Think about the bride. That's, who is that, by the way? That's us. How good we look. We don't look so good. How good a, how good a personality we got. I ain't got much of a personality. We're nasty, backbiting, stubborn, stiff-necked, shoot everybody in church. Somebody has a finger cut, we cut the hand off. We're nasty. Okay, let's put another word. We're ugly. Some of us could lose a couple of pounds. Why would anybody come for that bride? 
He's got a head to start, right? What my old joke? All you all you deserve in life is a fast horse and a twenty minute head start. He's gone. Why does he come back? For us, for you, for me. Can't he do better? So why does he come back? Blessed is he who comes for Israel. What's he get? He gets what? Israel. Is that a bargain? Are we a bargain? Why does he come? The people, see, why did water come out of this rock? The why, the philosophy of it. The people call God evil. Israel does here in Numbers 20. They accuse him of lying. They accuse him of breaking his contract promises. They accuse him of leading them to a place, the circuitous route, for the purpose of what? An execution. They, they accused him of leading them all through this uh, wilderness in order to slaughter them here. That's what they did. By the way, that's the same accusation that Satan made uh, out of Egypt. And that Satan makes at Matthew 4. And plus, add that. First we got that. The people that he gives water to, they accuse him of all of this. They call him evil. They accuse him of lying. They say he's trying to kill them. In other words, he's just a Machiavellian diabolical, evil creature. That's what they're saying about him. And then add to that, Moses and Aaron, they don't believe something. They rebel. Moses hits the second rock twice instead of speaking to it. And what happens? Still, still the living water comes out of it. So the obvious question is, what's up with that? Why does God give the water? To the shallow student of Scripture, it would seem that the living water should have been withheld and that everybody there should have died of thirst. All should have perished. Everything that could have been wrong was wrong, and what happened anyway? Water still came. So that's the why does the water come out of the rock question. That's question number six. The life comes from the rock in spite of or irrespective of the actions and the wicked thoughts of Israel and the departure of Moses from God's instructions. The water comes out of the rock. Life comes. And this is the critical question. It is essentially boiled down to, why does God save wicked people who hate him? Because he does. How do I know? Yeah. The whole room here. we got a whole bunch of us here. Why does he do that? What compels God to do this? What kind of person does this? What does God get? I've got to keep asking that. What does he get out of this? He gets you, me. Wow. What's it cost him? It costs him a lot. What's he get? He gets a pit bull with a bad attitude. Right? That's what he gets. Somebody told me once he got nothing. I thought about that. He get nothing? No. He does. He is glorified by it. How is it that he's glorified by this? Because it's relevatory of what? It's relevatory about what kind of person he is. And it is obvious that he is different from us. And we usually see and hear in our 
And then, by the way, this is a question everyone needs to answer because we usually see and hear in our contemporary media that God is being blamed for everything. He's being blamed for the typhoon and blamed for the, uh, the volcano and blamed for the hurricane and blamed for the, for the tsunami. He's blamed for everything. Uh, he's accused of being unjust. He's accused of being unloving. People look around and they see evil. Well, that's really great because what do they need to see evil? A mirror. That's what they need. But they look and they see it everywhere else. Every time I see that, why does God allow all this evil? I want to hold a mirror up in front of them. That's what I, you know, don't you pass dark glass? Don't you have a, some water that you can look at? There's lots of ways you can see yourself. They blame God for unloving. They say he's impotent. Uh, I think Mike did very well, talked about a, a, a radio guy that accused God of being unable to stop sin. It is constant, never-ending accusation after accusation. And what's he do about it? What's he do? He sends water from a rock. Again, why? What's the answer to the question? Why does he do it? There's a question. I didn't write it. I'll put the why. And what is the answer to it? The answer is good. He does it because he is good. And that's the rod, isn't it? Because the rod is a symbol of it testifies of his goodness. And how does it do that? It's a symbol of his death and his crucifixion. It is the snake eating the snakes, right? Snake snake eating snake. The snake eating snake, for those of you who uh, haven't heard that before, that is the same as the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant has what inside of it? It's the law that brings death and condemnation. And as long as it's inside the Ark, it's safe in there. We are safe. He He is the snake eating snake. He is the Ark of the Covenant. His goodness is the response, is his response to the accusations of mankind. Okay. Before we get to the motives, of Moses. That was question six. And what did I do for you? I kind of answered it, didn't I? If you got a test and I asked, I put on the test, why does he still bring the raw water out of the rock? You give me a one-word answer, don't you? Good. And you're in business. Okay, who says I never do that? Who? Who accuses me unjustly? Who? Yes, you're all, you're all guilty. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go through this very quickly. I'm going to run through the 12 step uh, of the Jewish betrothal wedding ceremony. I'm going to apply it both to the church and to Israel. Actually, I'll just take this. <coughs> okay? And I'll do it in a little different way. If you have your bulletin, uh, uh, I do this a little different than the bulletin because I don't quite, uh, uh, even though I, I think Mr. Chumney got almost. All of it right, which that's really remarkable if anybody gets that. I still uh, have done it a little bit different than him. So I think my way is, um, (laughs) how dare me say that, but it's true. I really do think it, so I guess I should admit to it. Okay, step number one, really quickly, the bride is selected. That's your first step. Selected, also chosen. The bride is chosen, right? The, the gathering of it. Israel is called what? I want you to see how this applies both to the church and both to Israel. 
the church is, or, or, I'm sorry, Israel is called what? They're called the chosen. The Jews are the chosen people. They have been selected by God. When were they selected? They were selected uh, at Abraham, right? Abrahamic covenant. The Hebrews, they're chosen. The bride is what? That's us, the church. We're also what? We're also gathered. We're also selected. So it applies to both. Hey, the church is chosen out of the world, John 15, 19. It's called, it's called the inviting. Matthew 20, 16. Matthew 22, 14. And by the way, those references aren't necessarily for you. But Israel, the entire book of Deuteronomy, which is a marriage contract, right? Out in Deuteronomy is chapter 7, which is the choosing of the bride. I'm sorry, the choosing of Israel. So we have the choosing of Israel and we have the choosing or the calling or the gathering of the church. And who, who chooses? Who chooses the, the bride or the wife? The trusted servant does. The trusted servant is sent to choose, to gather, to invite, to teach. Who did that for Israel? Moses. He's the trusted servant. Make the case it's both Moses and Aaron. Who is the trusted servant that is sent to gather, invite, call, teach the church of Christ? Holy Spirit. So both of them have that element, right? The gatherer of the church, the one sent, is God the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 through 4 and John 15, 26. Okay, two, there's a price established. Okay, have to pay a price. For the church, the price paid is what? should be obvious. What did it cost for the church? Death. The death, the blood of who? Christ. What's he called by God? What's one of his names? He is called the firstborn. The price is the death of the firstborn. The begotten. Okay? So, in order to pay the price for the church, I have to have the death of the firstborn of God. And uh, the bridegroom. The bridegroom will die. Okay? For Israel, they are released from bondage. They are released by Israel. Is, I'm sorry, by Egypt. Is, Egypt lets them go because of what? The tenth plague. Which was what? Death of the firstborn. Okay? Three and four I'm going to do together. Three and four is the legal contract. I have to have a legal contract. Uh, and the, the contract must be written. Okay? So I've got to have the written legal contract. With respect to Israel, what was their... Uh, when did they receive uh, their legal written contract? It's got to be prepared, it's got to be signed, and it's got to be given. So those elements are there. Prepared, signed, and given. Israel received the stone tablets uh, the, signed by the finger of God. And they heard thunderings, which, by the way, is, is languages. They heard languages. There was fire. There was, a, there was a sound from heaven. And that sound was what? Trumpet. Cool, first so far. So what does that mean? That means, and you need to know that the leadership of the church is working on this, because we're faithful, because we're caring, and because we understand our Bibles, and we're trying to be godly leaders, and so therefore we must have a trumpet section in the church. It's critical. 
And we're, we're going to devote all the energies we have to it until that is accomplished. It's very, very important. Thanks for laughing. Anyway, Israel received the stone tablets signed by the finger of God. They had thunderings and fire and the trumpet sound from heaven. And the Old Testament, the contract of Deuteronomy is given and signed and prepared for them. And the church did the same thing. The church had the rushing wind. It had the fire. It had also the sound from heaven. Both Israel and the church were given their respective contracts on the same feast day. Okay? Israel got its contract on the feast day of weeks, 50 days from the day they crossed the Red Sea. Okay? The church got its contract 50 days from the resurrection of Christ. Same feast day. 49 plus 1. Seven sevens plus the day after. 50. We mistakenly call it Pentecost. It is really the feast day of weeks. So the church has the perfect, the perfect, 1 Corinthians 13.10. Israel has Moses and the prophets, the New Testament and the Old Testament. So you learn that, by the way, 1 Corinthians 13.10, very important scripture, perfect. What is the perfect? The perfect is the legal written contract because both of this is on a marriage. And that solves the question. I get asked this question all the time about what does it mean when the perfect comes? Well, the perfect is a reference to the written, cere- uh, sorry, the written contract in the, in the betrothal ceremony. Now, number five. I have two testaments, don't I? Right? One for Israel, if you will, one for the church, if you will, but actually both for both. I have the vows of consent, because the bride has to consent. This is, by the way, where you run into personal responsibility and the omnipotence and the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. Right? This is the vows of consent. So humanity has personal responsibility for sin, yet God is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. So you have this sovereign God and this vows of consent, which is solved at Matthew 4. Israel's, by the way, their vows of consent is at Exodus 19.8, and they say this, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They also say the same thing at Exodus 24.3. Those are the vows of consent. The church has its vows also, and that's at Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the vows of consent there. Okay. By the way, all three persons of the triune Godhead participated in the resurrection. So when you see and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will know that all three persons there are being represented. And Christ is God. Number six, there are gifts. We have gifts. Gifts given and the cup. I have have this cup element and I have this gift element. Israel was given what? They were given the land. They were promised the land. They were promised blessings. It was a, by the way, conditional But they were given the land filled with blessing. The church was given 1 Corinthians 13 and crowns. 
All are given everlasting life. It's one of the promises. You have the cup of Gethsemane. You have the powdered golden calf. Remember, Moses comes down and he sees. So I look at this Gethsemane cup. And inside the cup of Gethsemane, by the way, is the cup that he says, let this cup pass. Inside that cup is the sins of the saved. I think that's the only defendable position. But notice the relationship between that and the a powdered golden calf. Moses powdered up that golden calf and made the people of Israel drink it. I have the cup of Elijah. I have the four cups of the Passover. And so cups are in both in the church and cups are in Israel. Seven, I have the cleansing. These are the 12 steps. And again, I'm going through them really, really fast. So, whoops. So at least uh, you can see how it all goes as best we can. Exodus 19.14, Israel is washed as part of their marriage ceremony. The church is baptized by the Holy Spirit, Luke 3.16. Immersion in water. I have all of this immersion that occurs. I have the Red Sea. I have the Jordan River. The Jordan River and the Red Sea are both pictures of, of being buried in judgment water. Jordan actually means descending into death and judgment from the city of Adam, or the person of Adam actually says that in Joshua. Okay, So if you're inside or underneath the Jordan River, you are buried in death and, and, and uh, sin. That is why, uh, by the way, Christ does not need to be baptized. He went exactly where the floating axe head was thrown. He went exactly where the Ark of the Covenant was when the second uh, generation of Israel entered into uh, the Promised Land because he wanted to let everyone know that he is the floating axe head. Actually, he's the tree that was cast to float the axe head. Sorry. But he is the tree that is thrown to get the axe head. The axe head is a picture of our soul. And, of course, that is also where Naaman the Syrian was, uh, was immersed. So you have all of those immersion things going on. The Red Sea, the Jordan River, Naaman the Syrian, the floating axe head or the tree or the branch that's thrown in, and the Dead Sea out of which nothing escapes. If you end up in the Dead Sea, you don't escape, right? And then number eight, I have the departure of the bridegroom. The bridegroom departs. Bridegroom departs. Christ does that at John 14, 1 through 3 and Acts 1, 9. He says, listen, I'm departing. I'm going to make a place for you. That is right out of the betrothal ceremony. That is why he said it. He is making sure that you understand all of this. Because he gave you step eight. So he's assuming that you know one through seven. And eight. And if you don't know 1 through 7, you'll never understand why he said what he said at 8, or John 14, 1 through 3. Why he left in the first place, because that's a question, right? Why did he ascend? Why didn't he hang around? He got the job done. He's dead, buried, he's resurrected. Why don't he just stay and clean the mess up? Because why? Number one reason, he's following the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. He's got the first eight right on the button. What's the chances he does nine? Okay, Moses at Deuteronomy 34 departs because of Numbers 20. And Aaron departs at Numbers 20. And just for an aside, Judas departs at Acts 125. I can't stop myself to get that in. But also, Ezekiel 10, the Shekinah glory, departs from Israel, leaves the temple. So we have this departing that happens all the time. Whenever you see somebody leave, somebody depart. Okay? You know you're at step eight. Nine. The bride is set apart, consecrated. 
I'm going to write this. The bride is alone. Very important to know that the bride will be left alone. The church is in the world, but it's hated, so it's set apart, and it's also alone, and it's persecuted. How's Israel doing? They were dispersed into the world, and they're hated and persecuted. The church is alone right now. There's nothing but the church. Pretty soon, Israel will be alone. And that is the purpose, by the way, of the tribulation, is to make Israel step nine. We're already in step nine. Israel doesn't know it. And by the way, it has the church. Pretty soon, the church will be gone. And the reason for taking the church is not to save the church from anything. The reason for taking the church away is to get Israel alone. Because we've got to do step nine. But Christ will come. He's going to come for both Israel and the church. Behold, the bridegroom comes for the church. And the blessed hope, Titus 2.13. Blessed is he who comes, Psalm 118.26. The blessed hope for Israel. We each have a blessed hope. And did I skip ten? Yes, I did. Ten is those two statements. Behold and blessed. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Blessed is he who comes. Christ comes for both. There are many, 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 many people out there. They're overwhelming. I give up. They've outnumbered me a billion to one who believes, who believe and teach fervently that Israel has ceased to exist and that Christ is coming for the church and the church only. It's called replacement theology. I know some of you go to other churches. Just go up master pastor someday. Do you believe? Do you have a replacement theology position? You'll be shocked. Chances are you're... Listen, how many churches do I know that do not have a replacement theology position in this city? Maybe four or five. That's how small it is. Christ will come. That's astonishing. Why does He come? Goodness. But He will come. For both Israel and the church, behold, the bridegroom comes. Blessed is he who comes. We have our blessed hope. They have their blessed hope. People try to commingle it into one blessed hope. But Israel is distinct from the church. Then the returning, number 11, the returning bridegroom. What's he do? First he returns. That, that's incredible. That's like comes. But the returning bridegroom he abducts. Abducts. That's his job. It's called the fetching. First Thessalonians 4, 15 and 16. He abducts the church. And the returning king saves Israel. So both return. Both have a... Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. Christ returns and does... Distinct things. And finally is the marriage supper for the bride. And who is at that? The bride is at that. And the friends of the bride is at that. The invited friends. 
church is the is the bride, Israel is the friends. Uh, see John 3.29 where John the Baptist says, I am a friend. Now I blew through that, but hopefully you can see that though Israel is depicted as a wife who has committed adultery and is divorced and is in a punishment alone stage in the sense that uh, uh, she is uh, not alone in the sense that she is um, without any because the church is still here. But she is in a punishment stage. She will go to an alone stage. And she is awaiting a cleansing <coughs> excuse me, and a remarriage. She is awaiting the returning husband who is Christ. And the church is depicted, Israel is depicted as a wife, and the church is depicted as a betrothed bride who is being cleansed now So we are in our cleansing period. They are waiting for their cleansing period. We are set apart now and alone. We're waiting for the returning bridegroom. They're waiting for, they're in the punishment stage. They're waiting to be alone and cleansed and the remarriage uh, awaiting the returning husband. So one is awaiting the returning husband. The other is awaiting the returning bridegroom. Now that is how we are being depicted. And that's why I always say I wish you'd have called us football team and baseball team. And you might understand it's a depiction. And he's not committing adultery or anything like that. I get that a lot. But both of these, see these elements, all 12 elements, they are in the church and all 12 elements are in Israel. And when you go through your Bible, you will find that everywhere. And if you don't understand that what you're doing is that you're in this format, you will struggle. Know the difference. Both follow the 12-step process. They are, however, not the same. Know the difference. Know the distinctions or doctrinal error will result. Now, finally, Moses. I am going to do it. I'm going to make it. Moses was doing what he always does. What's Moses always do? He is the most humble. He is faithful. He wants to blot himself out. He's face to face with God. What's he doing? He goes up there and goes, Here now, you rebels. What's he doing? What he always does. What's he always do? He's putting himself in front of Israel. He's standing. Here's God. Here's Israel. What's Israel doing? They are calling God what? Evil. Telling God that he's a liar, a contract breaker. They're shaking. I can't do it because I'm on the internet. But you can imagine the vernacular, what they're doing. They're not waving in air aircraft, but they're still giving a hand signal. That's what they're doing. What's Moses think is going to happen? Sooner or later, God's going to what? Yeah, sooner or later, God's going to end this, isn't he? Is this the day? Sooner or later, God ends it, doesn't he? Israel, Moses didn't know when. But he had to assume, like we always assume, it can't get any worse. It's got to be tomorrow, right? It can't be. We can't, it can't get any worse. God's going to end it Thursday. If he doesn't, he ought to. Look at these people. So Moses doesn't know. He knows God's going to end sin and he's going to put an end to it. He's going to stop it. He's going to start the millennial rule. He's going to have the marriage supper. He's going to have the invited friends. It's going to happen. 
is today the day. And Moses does what he always does. He goes right here. Because what is Moses? He's a type of Christ, isn't he? He is interceding. He is, uh, he is a mediator. And so this intercession has happened. I want you to think about, uh, Jennifer's not here tonight, Jennifer, uh, Jen Sanders, as opposed to Jennifer from Arizona. Um, Adam had a chance to do what Moses did. He could have stood in front of Eve. He didn't. He went to the side of Eve. Moses stands in front of Israel. He doesn't join her. He goes to the, in front of her. So I think that he believed God's wrath was imminent, and he stood, and he and Aaron stood between what he thought was the ending of sin and the people of Israel. That is, I think, the strongest position. Either Moses and Aaron then, what would happen? I asked last week, is God going to kill Israel? No. And what's left? Did Moses think God was going to kill Israel? Or did Moses, what was, what was going on? If Moses didn't think he would kill Israel, then what's, what can, what's left? Somebody had to die in the place of Israel, right? Now, either Moses and Aaron would die as an example of the Nadab-Abihu solution. Because what Moses did, what Aaron did, was so much worse than what Nadab and Abihu did doctrinally, you would expect that God would intervene. This is Moses doing it, Aaron doing it. The other two guys were just first day on the job, just got their uniforms. This is a deliberate act. Either Nadab, it'd go Nadab, Abihu, or Israel would do what? Israel would attack them and they would uh, kill the intercessor. That seemed to be the only possibilities. And I think Moses was stalling for time. Certainly what Moses said would incite Israel. He said, hear now you rebels. Do I got to make water come out of the rock? And Bam. Did he expect water to come out of the rock? If water did not come out of the rock, what would happen? Put yourself in the event. I'm going to stand in front of a hostile crowd. I'm going to call them names, and I'm going to say, do I got to do this? And then I can't do it. What are they going to say? Oh, Moses ain't got no power. Moses got no power, which is what I say all the time. I have no power. Moses has no power. What comes next? What's the typology say? Get him. He's helpless. We can get him. He has no ability. God won't defend him, and he can't do anything. The, the, the rod didn't do anything. Attack. Did it not seem reasonable to Moses and Aaron, by the way? Uh, did Moses and Aaron think that God would uh, give the water? First, they incite the crowd surrounding them. Then they deliberately do the opposite of what God, God commanded purposely. And their plan is obvious to me. But they didn't think of something and believe something. What is it they didn't believe? You have the answer. I gave it to you already. Because God did what? He gave the water. God gave the water. Moses did not believe that God would give the water, I think. But God gives water. It is what he does. 
with rise and be dismissed.